if those problems require global solutions, the history of responding adequately to challenges suggests that we require strengthen intergovernmental organizations, especially those of the UN system. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I am very happy today because I got to invite Professor Thomas Wiss, whose books have been enlightening my whole career. I've been reading his books. He's one of the keenest observers and one of the most renowned researchers of the UN Secretary and the UN system at large, of course. And... He's also presidential professor of political science at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. And among the many academic positions you have held, Professor, I want to mention that you were the principal investigator for three fascinating research projects. The first was the future of UN development system um, around 2011 and between 2011 and 2017. And the, the second was the wartime history and the future UN. And then finally, the UN Intellectual History Project from 1999 to 2010. So in the early part of your career, actually, you were a colleague because you served with the UN in several parts of the Secretariat and also in UN specialized agencies. And of course, as I was saying before, you have published countless works on international relations, the UN system, humanitarian affairs, humanitarian aid, and peacekeeping. So I know for sure that a lot of our listeners know your name and have read some of your works. But before we go into today's subject, which is imagining a world without the UN, is that even possible? That before we do that, please introduce yourself to our audience and perhaps tell us how you became so interested in the United Nations. Well, thanks so much, Francesco, for the kind words of introduction. Um, interesting question, uh, because over the last several decades, I've struggled to persuade students that there is no need to have a linear career development. And so if you look at my uh, current and checkered past, we, we would go back to finishing university and uh, I was trying to avoid uh, collecting frequent flyer miles to Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. And so I took a job that, at Rikers Island Reformatory, which is a prison uh, in the East River in New York City, which gave me a, a deferment. I was teaching there. Uh, but one of the things I learned there, or and this is a roundabout way of saying how I got to the UN, I was working in a reformatory with kids adolescents who uh, lived in the South Bronx, but I had to work with the Department of Corrections and the city of New York, which is partially funded by the state of New York and by the federal government. And so I quickly began thinking in more systematic terms, systems terms. And when I went to graduate school uh, at Princeton after that experience, I decided, well, as long as I was having so little effect in Rikers Island prison, maybe I should try to go to the other extreme at the globe. Uh, and that actually is how I got into studying international relations because I hadn't done that before. Uh, and during my graduate's career, uh, there was an opportunity for a, an internship, the uh, International Labor Organization. Uh, which at the time was in the building where the WTO is now uh, along the lake. Uh, and that summer, I worked with um, a, a guy whose name is Bob Cox, who's 
uh, died, but who was a Canadian academic who was worked at the Institute for Labor Studies. I worked directly with him. And actually, the research I did ended up eventually in my dissertation. But when I got back to the United States, I began thinking about how I could actually study the United Nations. So I spent a year at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, where you're now lecturing on occasion. Um, and that's where I really developed my interest in studying the behavior and misbehavior for international organizations. I then ended up leaving a teaching position that I, the tenure track position at the time, to take, returned to head up a research organization looking at peacekeeping and the UN's efforts in security. In Geneva, I had worked at UNCTAD and had worked on the problems, development problems, and I decided that I needed more exposure to security. So I was there. And then after that, I I had always liked writing. I had written a couple of books while I was in the secretariat, actually, when I wasn't supposed to, but I did anyway. And I then uh, taught for 10 years at Brown University. And then I, 25 years ago, it hardly seems possible, I moved to New York to the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is where the projects that you mentioned, um, I, I worked on those projects and was fortunate enough to raise enough resources to do them uh, from that spot in New York. And so here we are, although today uh, in something called phased retirement, um, I live living in Chicago and go to New York because I still have some PhD students. So there we are today. Thank you for giving me that opportunity, which I usually don't have. Well, that that was great listening to uh, to how this developed in this, you know, deep-seated kind of passion for the study of the UN. I, I know that you're not only there in Chicago, you do a number of things. Uh, I, I know that we get to see you in Geneva on several occasions. We get to see you in other, in other places where, where the future of international relations and international organization is discussed. I wanted just to set the scene for this episode because as I said before, we try to imagine a world without the UN, not because we're anticipating anything like that, because one of the latest books that you wrote is titled Would the UN would the sorry the world be better without the UN? And uh, that poses a number of interesting questions. And you use this counterfactual approach, try to imagine what the world would be if the UN weren't there. And so, so let's start from looking at fact. For for over seventy five years now. The, the, the world has benefited from the work of the United Nations in many ways. And uh, of course, there is peacekeeping, there is monitoring, you know, weapons of mass destruction, there is negotiating and mediating, there is humanitarian coordination, combating epidemics. We have seen this uh, recently with all the goods and the bads and combating poverty as well. So at this stage, is it is it at all possible to imagine the future of international relations in the world without the UN? And this is something that you look into the book. And I, I will want to really take a deep dive there and, and, and hear it from you uh, so that our audience can learn it from you. There is also the fact of reforming the UN. The UN has been wanting to reform or has been, you know, told to reform a lot for many, many decades. And um, this is still a priority today. But then the question is, would that even suffice? What reforms would suffice to effectively tackle global challenges, the size of climate change, the rise of inequalities and the global migration crisis. When these big challenges weren't that global, and some of them weren't even there when the UN was designed. So that is also another question that set the scene for, for this episode. And so we saw with the COVID 
pandemic and the war in Ukraine, that actually the system can be paralyzed and distracted and become even dysfunctional just when it is needed the most. And this is something that you approach in your book before these two episodes came to reality. And so let's begin the conversation, Professor, if you wish, by looking at the UN from your own standpoint of all these years of research uh, that you have done and all these years of teaching as a professor. For example, in your book that, that, that is the backbone to this episode, you talk about these three UN at play. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how they coexist? Well, thanks. Yes, this is one of the major insights that resulted from the intellectual history projects of the United Nations. And it relates to the fact that the principal conclusion is that if you think about the UN in terms of its two big kinds of operations, um, I mean, operations and field assistance and training, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's the other part, which is the one related to ideas, uh, norms, principles, and standards. And uh, the proposition after those 10 years of research was that that, frankly, is the main legacy of the United Nations because they're picked up by individuals, they're picked up by organizations, they're picked up by corporations, uh, they're picked up by governments, et cetera. So we think that's where the main leverages. But in doing that research, my colleague, uh, Sir Richard Jolly, who was uh, directing the project uh, with me, a former executive director, uh, a deputy at UNICEF, the head of the UN Development Program, after he retired, we ran this project together. And as we were looking at the sources of uh, ideas, the pressure for new norms, women's rights, environmental rights, etc., they frequently not always, but almost came from outside the formal setup of the United Nations and uh, came from individuals, they came from organizations, they came from Rachel Carson on the environment. And uh, I, I said, Richard, you know, this doesn't really fit into the work we're doing on the UN. He said, oh, that, that, they're part of the UN, aren't they? And I said, well, now, Richard, there's something called international relations theory. And there are two United Nations, according to the guy who wrote the classic textbook in his Claude. Uh, there's the first UN of member states who uh, call the shots, so to speak. They are supposed to pay the bills, and sometimes they do. Uh, there's the second UN of uh, international civil servants who, at the top, the secretary general down through the P1s wandering around in the in the basement. Um, and that's the second UN. But the, these other people don't figure. And they said, well, <laughs> change the theory, uh, which was, in fact, perfectly sensible answer from somebody who hadn't studied international relations. So the article that we wrote at the end of that project, and it's also the topic for a research book that I did with a former student who worked on the project, uh, Tatiana Karianis, is called The Third United Nations, How a Knowledge Ecology Helps the UN Think. So it was everything from individual experts to international commissions to the media to corporations who come together with in international negotiations and in deliberations with member states, with international civil servants. It's everybody else on the outside who sometimes are in the conference room or sometimes pushing and shoving international civil servants or governments. So that the fact is that this is a, a principal way that change happens, actually. Uh, and the pressure, as I say, not 
in every instance, but in many instances, comes from outside. And it's this that what you would call the network space where the three come together that one finds the most intellectual sparks and policy sparks. So that's the third United Nations. So it's not every NGO, it's not every individual, it's not every commentator, but the ones who work in and around the ballet in Geneva, for example, who bring to bear the kind of pressure that we think is necessary to change the norms and standards and procedures. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So these three UN, you know, the member states component, the secretariat component, and everyone else, basically, the global citizens coexist and they're there and we can see how, how they interact. And what you're saying is when they're all together in the same place, talking about the same thing, um, this is where the interaction happens. And this is where the UN has uh, an opportunity to advance. I would like to take the conversation to the deep dive now. I was impressed reading your book and I hope that our audience will get a chance to read it. So the book is, Will the World Be Better? without the UN. So I would like to turn that into a question to you. Would the world be better without the UN? Your answer is clear in your book. I won't reveal it. It's for you to do that. But but I want to stress that that book was written well into the Syrian conflict, for example, and well into the growing, swelling climate change crisis and the rise of new tensions across the geopolitical landscape, but before COVID and before the current war in Ukraine. So the first part... Let me jump right right in. In the first part of the book, you describe the four ailments of the UN. Can you speak about this? You know, be happy to. Um, it, it's nice to hear that you have the book in front of you. And if uh, others would like to, it's not all that expensive. And the answer is found on page 190. Uh, and the answer there is no. I had anticipated writing this book for the 20th anniversary. In some ways, it pulled together the strands of things I've been working on for 50 years. And my plan was to bring it out for the 20th anniversary. Uh, And then there was one little problem, namely the election of Donald Trump and his assuming office uh, in the same month in 2017 that Guterres became secretary general. And I just decided that there was not only no reason to wait, there was every reason to accelerate the writing uh, of the book. And and one of the realizations was that, you know, Trump, as awful as he was, is not the only populist or nativist on the planet these days. There are plenty of those in the North, there are plenty of them in the global South. Uh, And so I thought it was time to try to ask this question. So the, the four ailments, if you wish, or problems, the major ones that I see, um, and to start off with uh, the most cited article in the UN Charter, namely Article 2.7, which relates to state sovereignty. It's the basis for my country first attitudes that are so prevalent and paralyzing, uh, as you mentioned, not just in Syria, currently in Ukraine, but in lots of other political problems. So that was the first big ailment. The the second, uh, and some of my sidekicks don't like me saying this, but I find the theater of the clash between the uniform North, the industrialized countries, and the so-called global South, including Palau and China, uh, somehow these two groupings uh, make sense that the U.S. and the Nordics are on the same page. Uh, This is just, frankly, a recipe for the kind of paralysis and the excuse for not 
doing much. One of the criticisms, is, I'm not the only person that ever said this, that the, the theater of the UN, in which the process is more important than the, than the results. And so I see this uh, as having uh, grown out of an important development in the 1960s and 70s after decolonization, in which one had to talk about confronting the wealthy North uh, and changing the rules. I think that those that particular change uh, has now long outlived its utility. So that's the second problem. The third one, and this is something that reflects not just my analytical career, but it reflects the decade I spent in the Secretariat, is the atomization of the UN system. I use the uh, term uh, UN family because like most of our families, it's rather dysfunctional. Uh, But it's really about the fact that the so-called system that uh, in 19 1969, Sir Robert Jackson and and, uh, and Margaret Anstey, in writing the look at the development system, called it a, a prehistoric monster. Well, that dinosaur is 53 years older now. I don't know what that makes it, uh, the, the dinosaur, but that atomization has continued. And finally, I find that leadership, and I don't mean just the top support organization, all that too, that let's say the quality of staff and the quality of dedication leaves a lot to be desired. So those were the four ailments that I tried to spell out and uh, try to see what that they mean for the day-to-day operations and the long-term operations, not just at the 75th anniversary and the 50th anniversary and the 25th anniversary and hopefully 100th, but we'll see about that. This whole analysis you run is actually the first part of your book. Uh, your book has, has three parts for those who haven't read it. And the first looks at these four problems uh, that you mentioned. In the second part is where the, the very interesting part for me begins, where you take the reader to this sort of alternative reality um, in which the UN is simply not there. And you try to describe a situation in which the UN and its ideas and its operations are simply absent from the landscape. Well, let's give it to the audience. How is that world? <laughs> well, what I try to do is, is some people dismiss counterfactuals as a plaything of academics. I actually think they're quite helpful in trying to focus the mind. So part of what I tried to do there was to tell some stories that are important, not always well known. So the first half of the consists of specific illustrations about the how the world would have been far worse off at several crucial junctures over the last three quarters of a century without critical inputs from bits and pieces from the UN itself and the UN system. What I was hoping in that part of the book is that uh, the argument would at least give pause to the foes of multilateral cooperation in their declared war on the rules-based international order that we have that's under stress, as we know from the Ukraine, but it's under stress for a lot of other reasons. So denying that proposition would involve, for example, asserting that the world (laughs) would be better without the campaigns that eradicated smallpox in 1977 and have almost done the same for polio and guinea worm, or that efforts to formulate women's rights and gender rights rights or the the groups that have worked on the effects of climate change or that delivered emergency assistance to war 
victims in the Congo or Sudan or today in the Ukraine or that kept peace on the Golan Heights or in Cyprus or facilitated decolonization, fostered alternative development thinking. Project I'm working now begun to take steps to protect cultural heritage and prosecute war criminals. And the list goes on. But the second counterfactual is for a different audience. I unkindly describe them as uh, UN cheerleaders with uh, blue pom-poms, um, UN associations uh, worldwide, because there are substantial debits as well as the assets. There are substantial debits on the organization's leisure. Uh, and so it really would be a little difficult to maintain that the world would not have also been far better place had we had improved performances by the first UN of member states and by the second UN of civil servants. For example, what if the permanent and elected members of the Security Council had acted less hypocritically in Rwanda's real-time genocide or currently in Syria or Myanmar or Yemen or what have you, uh, Ukraine. Or if peacekeepers had not, let's say, raped children in Central Africa and spread cholera in Haiti, would the world not have been a slightly better place? Or frankly, if more dedicated and competent staff had performed better in implementing development projects, conducting independent monitoring, or if there were fewer, as a problem I mentioned earlier, the atomization, if there were fewer interorganizational turf battles and more genuine collaboration among the members of the so-called UN family. And that list also goes on. So it's the juxtaposition of those two counterfactuals where obviously the world would not have been better, but also where there are possibilities for improving and improving substantially the performance of UN organizations. And that leads me straight to my third question in this part of our conversation that relates to the third part of the, of, of the book. And you lead the reader into this part in which you inspire the reader with a vision of a world in which the UN is back now, it exists, but it's not quite the UN we, we got used to. It's a UN that is more creative and effective, just to quote you, a uh, quote from your book. So let the audience hear what it means, how is that world, and what it means for the UN to be more creative and effective? Well, I'm, I'm going to be shameless here uh, and allow the Kofi Annan to speak uh, a little of the book, the dear man uh, who wrote the foreword. And I'm just going to read a couple of sentences. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me this, so I thought it was useful for me to pull this out. And he says, in a bold and original way, we use as counterfactuals to examine the United Nations, what it does, what would happen if it ceased to exist, and what can be done to improve it. He does not shy away from lamenting the obvious shortcomings and failures of member states and international civil servants. But he also provides a timely reminder of the crucial normative and operational work undertaken by the world organizations. He points out that we can await new unspeakable disasters to prove the need for better intergovernmental organizations and undoubtedly be rewarded with unimaginable calamities. Or we can make fitter for purpose the organizations that we have. So the spirit of what I did in analyzing the four ailments, the four problems that you, we spoke about earlier, was that I thought there was something to be done in order to actually make those 193 member states have the 
I said if they behaved more responsibly and had its 100,000 civilian staff and about the same number of police and soldiers been more creative and competent and courageous. So as I looked at those four problems, <laughs> diminishing the role of state sovereignty is, uh, I guess, not for my lifetime. I mean, in certain ways, it's very different from the way it was when I started looking at intergovernmental organizations. I mean, there are more treaties tying the hands of members states, their norms that have come in, the responsibility to protect and try to take the roughest edges off for state sovereignty. But the turning inward of populist worldwide, and that's, as I say, Trump is temporarily gone, but we've got Xi and Putin and Orban and all host of others. And we try to think about the pandemic and we try to think about climate change, just to think about two things that are staring us in the face today. I'm a little, shall we say, pessimistic. I'm not all that comfortable that we're going to do anything by the UN at 100. I have greater hope and I think something more to say about the other three. And I, somewhere toward the end of the book, I, I actually quote Australia's uh, former prime minister, Kevin Rudd, he said, if one day the UN disappears, or more likely just slides into neglect, it is only then that we would become fully aware of the gaping hole this would leave in what remained of the post-war order. So it seems to me that it's not impossible as we attach those other three problems to say that the pitting of the global north versus the global south is something that can break down on occasion. For example, the landmines treaty and the work on the International Criminal Court. There are times when these silly divisions of the theater breaks down and it's then I see that, in fact, we can take steps in the right direction. In terms of that dysfunctional UN family, I would hope over the next quarter century that we would see fewer moving parts. I point out that they actually the the only meaningful consolidation has been the creation of UN women in which instead of four disparate units, there was the creation of a more major one. I think that donors, ones who supposedly finance the organization, should cease speaking out of two sides of their minds, mouths. Instead of providing all kinds of funding uh, broken down into increasing amounts of soft money that have their name attached to it, they have more centralized core funding for the reduced number of UN organizations to mute, shall we say, to the competition, uh, the race to the bottom among UN agencies for funds that characterizes way too much of what goes on. And finally, it seems to me that there are various ways to open up the appointment of senior positions to think about something besides national quotas and to determine who gets hired. And frankly, um, I would like to see much more turnover in personnel, not lifelong uh, careers. It's the same thing I say about university professors. It, it seems to me that there are lots of ways that one could make the organizations function better uh, and more productively. As we look at um, the future, mindful of the fact that there has been a lot of talk preceding the 75th anniversary, but also more recently about the UN uh, we want or the war we want at the UN we need. So if we now start looking at the future, you mentioned a number of things that could make the UN more creative and effective. 
But do you also see other reforms that are both possible and effective enough in the face of global challenges for which the UN wasn't designed after all? So my point, Professor, is there's certainly a whole list, a very long list of reforms being you know, proposed over the years by a number of academics, a number of commissions, committees, uh, practitioners, experts, people like me that work for the secretary, etc. But do you see other reforms that are both possible and effective enough at this point of the development and the destiny of the UN as an organization? Well, Francesco, one of the things that I tried to do in the book, and I actually um, increasingly persuaded that we have to do, is be more aware of the history and what works and what doesn't work. And so this is another <laughs> sort of atypical for political scientists um, because I'm, I'm paid to extrapolate from yesterday morning. Uh, and the long run, I argue in the book, uh, extends not much beyond the next public opinion poll. And so in my advancing dotage here, I made an effort to become a back-of-the-envelope historian to combat what I see uh, in these reform discussions as well, what I call an inverse Alzheimer's disease. That is, remember what happens this week, but we forget the context that has crafted that memory over the last 75 years. And if you go back to the League of Nations, which I oftentimes do to think about the beginning of the current generation of international institutions, those contexts have slipped away. So I often... And forgive me here. I I wanted to begin at the beginning because the creation of the United Nations was not in San Francisco in the month of June in 1945 uh, or when the charter was signed or in October of that same year when there were enough ratifications for it to enter in force, but rather in Washington, D.C. in January of 1942 when 26, uh, what would later be 44 countries, Sign something called a declaration by the United Nations. Most observers, and I include myself here until the last couple of decades, are unaware that the label <laughs> of the, for the military alliance to defeat fascism, to crush fascism, also entailed a parallel commitment to a standard operating procedure, which is called international cooperation or collaboration or multilateralism. That same standard operating procedure was supposed to, although it broke down fairly quickly afterwards, was supposed to guide post-war, the pursuit of post-war peace and prosperity through an institution with what? That bore the same name. So in some ways, I know people will bear with me a minute here because I see that the 1940s in many ways represent represented the, the pinnacle of global governance. So the 75th and the 70th and the 65th, all these earlier birthdays, and I'm hoping that maybe <laughs> for the 80th, I keep making this argument, earlier birthdays should have called attention to that 42-45 United Nations alliance, because the end of that war, like the end of World War One, the end end of the Napoleonic Wars resulted in an experiment, a third generation of international organizations after nationalism and going alone were exposed as empty vessels. So today, armed conflicts are no longer the only or perhaps even the, the main threat to international order and uh, human survival with dignity. Yet, until the, we started this conversation earlier with the Ukraine, 
Um, it seems to me until the, the crisis, and I believe that crises oftentimes lead to the kind of change that we would like to see. Until this crisis, I would argue that the European Union had lost its way, that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was either obsolete or brain dead, depending on whether you were Donald Trump or Emmanuel Macron. And the United Nations, frankly, was an afterthought, if it was a thought at all. So at the same time, as we're dealing with this awful war in the Ukraine, there's an absolutely fundamental disconnect between a growing number of global challenges, not all challenges, but a growing number of challenges that point to the inadequate structures for problem solving and decision making. I try to argue in the book, we have occasional tactical, short-term, local reviews and responses instead of the sustained and strategic and longer run global perspectives and actions that are the only way we can solve these crises. So this is fairly long-winded discussion of going back to 42 to 45, because no one questions the effort that was made by the allies, not even the crew of my country firsters. So examining the wartime UN contradicts the conventional wisdom that idealism, that liberalism was abandoned to confront the Nazis in Imperial Japan. It shows that, in fact, those things we call Kantian ideals of peace were found to be absolutely essential to the Hobbesian project of survival. So there is a bottom line here. When governments, the allies at that time, when governments decide to use intergovernmental organizations, they work. The wartime actions of the founders suggest that our current shriveled imaginations lead to second best surrogates for more robust multilateral cooperations. Now, if global problems require global solutions, not every global is problem is global, but the ones that do, whether it's climate or pandemics or WMDs, uh, Financial instability goes on. If those problems require global solutions, the history of responding adequately to challenges suggests that we require strengthen intergovernmental organizations, especially those of the UN system. So my priority happens to be actually reinforcing the, the crumbling, and that's what I would say, the crumbling foundations of the UN system that we have. So you know, we can discuss Security Council reform to the cows come home in Switzerland or anywhere else. I really think one needs to look at critically reinforcing those foundations as we think about moving toward the UN at 100. And to your point, if we are to reinforce those foundations and if we, you know, build on this concept that, that you offer, which is very powerful in the book, when, when member states when nations and governments decide to use international organization in, in, in a setting of international cooperation, then those organizations are successful and they work. So if we want to go and reinforce those crumbling foundations, what strategies could the international community use to adapt the UN for or to the future context of international relations going forward. And I'm saying this because I'm, I'm deliberately not counting the scenario in which a slow onset or rapid conflagration will lead the international community to create a third um, um, a global organization. So not talking about that scenario, but talking about the scenario where we keep this one and we know it needs adaptation. What are the strategies that you see would be possible at this point 
this week, this month, uh, this year, I'm really uh, close to despondent because as we look at uh, the agreement on climate, for example, Paris on and again and off again, and, but a- anyway, with the U.S. and others back into that, the first thing that happens with the war in Ukraine and uh, petrol prices and heating prices going through the roof, the first reaction by all of our leaders is to <laughs> drill, baby, drill. I mean, we, we need to look at fossil fuels as a part of the solution. So I keep trying to figure out whether there is a crisis that would be big enough and fast enough, but not catastrophic enough to force member states because they are the ones who are going to make these decisions. They're the ones who are going to finance the the solutions. It's not going to be Bill Gates. It's going to be member states. And as I say, I, about 10 years ago, I thought that maybe climate would do that, but that climate was moving too slowly, in fact, to, to, you know, you could ignore the evidence. We may be back now to where it's <laughs> impossible to ignore the climate evidence and that that may be the trigger for uh, a kind of substantial reform that's going to be necessary. Because otherwise, if you, if you follow the conversations as you do in Geneva or I do in New York, or you read publications or listen to uh, media uh, from various parts of the world, there is not a groundswell of support for this notion. So we need to speak about the great reawakening of the United Nations. And in fact, at that point about when, you know, governments decide to use the damn thing, it works. And if you even think about the disaster of Syria and the disaster of the response or lack of response by the Security Council to the humanitarian situation. When chemical weapons were discovered, those same inept elected members and permanent members decided there was only one organization that could look into and do something about it. So the UN, along with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, was called upon. So th- this just suggests, again, the the necessity that there, we can't get around this. There's not going to be a way to find a gimmick to get around member states of, of the first UN taking multilateral cooperation seriously and is, frankly, the only solution to several problems. And the infrastructure is there if they decide to use it. If they decide not to use it, we're going to have uh, uh, more pandemics. We're going to have uh, more floods. We're going to have more heat waves. We're going to have more hurricanes. We're going to have more disasters of every sort. So I hold out the, the hope some combination of the reawakening of multilateralism be it only part of the world in reaction to the Ukraine, combined with the fact that no one is going to be safe until this pandemic is over everywhere, in in combination with action that has to be taken on the environment to move us beyond the seemingly paralysis we are at the present. I'm old enough that, you know, I'm not going to lose a fortune betting on that. But it seems to me that that's really the only hope is that the crises get awful enough, but not catastrophic to push people to make the kinds of decisions that need to be made. I mean, it's the same. (laughs) I'm actually very fond of uh, Charles Dickens' description of the French Revolution and A Tale of Two Cities and what she says. I think it's quite apt. 
you know, it, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And so I'm hoping that in our own age, there'll be slightly more wisdom and slightly less foolishness. Sorry, I can't <laughs> get too much more enthusiastic than that this morning. But that is a great place to to wrap up this conversation. First of all, I wanted to remind our audience that um, this episode revolved around the book that you published in 2018 called Would the World Be Better Without the UN? And thank you also for reminding me the foreword was written by Kofi Annan here in Geneva in 2017. And it's actually, there is a lot of wisdom in that very short foreword, less than a page, but there is a lot of wisdom as he got as used to. So I wonder, Professor Bis, as we wrap up the episode, is there any final thought that you wish our audience to remember if there is one thing that they should take away from, from these before they go or after they go and read your book? What would that be? We've already abused uh, your listeners. Uh, and in this business, one has to be an inveterate optimist. There, there, there's no other solution. Um, and we've seen, and the, the reason I wanted to end with that Dickens quote is that, you know, this is also a period in which we've seen longevity going up, in which we've seen women's rights improving. There's lots of problems with improving. We've seen literacy going up. And we see no nuclear weapons have been detonated in war since 1945. We've seen the, as I mentioned earlier, smallpox eliminated. I mean, this is a kind of a, a model of sorts. Uh, and it was also a time, go back to that for a minute, because smallpox the cost of eliminating that disease. Wait, let's not even think about the numbers of human lives that were saved and improved. But let's just think about the administrative costs that were saved by health and government authorities worldwide over the last 45 years. And all of that was brought to you by an expenditure, an international expenditure of some $300 million. Obviously, we have to inflate that for current costs. But at the time, that was the cost of a single fighter jet. So if one was trying to say, well, is there a cost-benefit analysis that can be done about the value of cooperation? That's the kind of model. I think so. And, and for niggardly Americans who were thinking, well, why do we pay so much of the bill? I mean, the fact is the portion, the U.S. portion of that bill over the period leading up to 1977 was about a third of that, $100 million. I mean, this is just trivial. And the results are there. And so it seems to me that others trying to make that calculation need to think about the illustrations of what works, what doesn't work. And in the face of the existential, that's the word, existential crisis facing us now, previous generations waffled on answers to those questions, we're getting very close to the point that we can no longer try to pretend these questions are not pertinent. But one can't say, well, until the U.S. does something, China and India are going to do something, or until India and China do something, Mauritius is not going to do something. This is just mad. It's postponing the, the catastrophe that you don't have to look very far to see. So I still believe I wouldn't have been in this business for this long without thinking that change is significant changes possible, uh, even though I'd like to think transformation is what's necessary. The evidence for that is very modest, but I think that substantial change can take place. And that's why I continue trying to uh, crank up my word processor occasionally to write, which is my modest contribution to this effort. 
And I, for one, and I guess many others, are grateful to you for continuing to explore that way. Let me ask you, Professor, where to find more about your work and any advice on web resources and other knowledge sources that our audience may um, find useful as they go into understanding better multilateralism and the future of the UN? Well, you know, I was going to say that one of the advantages of being or having been around as long as I am is that and thinking about the library in Geneva, I'm old enough to actually have a book or two in the card catalog. But I think one of the advantages these days for students anywhere, I teach a course in Korea, etc., is that all kinds of resources are available electronically. You don't have to steal things from people's offices anymore to do research. So those who are interested in doing research can certainly find a wealth of the those, my, as I say, I, I, my, <laughs> you're interested in what I've written, you just go to Wikipedia and you can find that out. And there are lots of other people in this business. In fact, one of the interesting developments just over the course of my career, and it's sort of related to that slight note of optimism we tried to have earlier, is that I helped get started an organization in the mid to late 1980s when the UN was at Nader in its existence as well. It's called the Academic Council on the UN system. They're organizing uh, meetings of practitioners and academics. And at that time, the uh, sort of market, if you wish, for analyses about multilateralism, about the UN system, about the World Bank and other institutions, there was almost no market. There was all, there were almost no jobs for academics. There was almost no future for a student interested in these issues. And now that's certainly it's not the case. There are opportunities uh, not only in the academy, but in a host of non-governmental organizations and in a host of actually private corporations, which are increasingly making room for people to do work on these issues. So this change is, is substantial. And I would sort of encourage any of the younger listeners to, to think seriously about work in the international arena. And the UN is certainly not the only place. In fact, it's one of the harder places to to enter. But there are lots of organizations doing UN-related work that are looking for talented and dedicated uh, younger folks. And there are lots of ways to learn about the issues and contribute to them uh, and find a position. So I'd like to end on that positive note in the best and worst of times. And that's great. So, Professor Thomas Wies, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the next page with us. All the best to you, best wishes, and uh, continue to write books as useful, as engaging as this one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.